Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today are Brian Clark, a retired United States Navy commander and submariner who now directs the Center for Emerging Concepts and Technologies at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, and Brian McGrath, also a retired United States Navy commander and destroyerman, having commanded USS Bulkley. Uh, he now leads the Ferry Bridge Consultancy. Both uh, men uh, thoughtfully advised the United States Navy leadership, uh, and both were kind enough to join us uh, the week before last for the Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and General Electric Marine. Fincantieri Marinette Marine, of course, sponsors our naval coverage. Gentlemen, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Bob. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. Uh, guys, great piece um, on uh, Commander Salamander titled Disrupt the Navy's Operational Model to Counter China. Uh, where you guys challenge, I think rightfully so, the optimized fleet response plan that has long been criticized for neither being optimized nor particularly uh, responsive or, or rather an efficiency measure at the height uh, in the beginning part of the war, right? In order for us to generate uh, the, that uh, kind of capability uh, we needed all the while uh, the Navy was shrinking in size. Um, both of you endorsed the plan that uh, you, Brian Clark, uh, developed in 2017 when you were at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments uh, called Restoring American Sea Power, a new fleet architecture for the U.S. Navy, uh, really a, a touchstone dark do uh, document. You guys need. You guys are making the argument that we've got to make major changes if we're going to continue deterring China. McGrath, why don't you start us off? What's what's wrong with what we're doing, and why? And why does it have to change? What was the genesis of this piece? Well, I've I've never been a, a great fan of OFRP. Um, it does what it's it does what it does, and it does it well, and that is to produce carrier strike groups and expeditionary strike groups on a fairly regular basis, uh, ready to do lots of things. It's not necessarily a fantastic way to get the best use out of your whole fleet. Um, and I've been watching the, the debate. Uh, I've been watching particularly Representative Luria, Representative Gallagher and others um, who are, who've been making a lot of noise about current threat problems based on Admiral Davidson's um, testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee, where he uh, postulated that uh, the Chinese might be preparing to make a move on Taiwan between now and the next uh, five or six years. Uh, Jerry Hendricks called that the Davidson window. It's got everybody spun up. Um, the, the, the problem is that uh, you can't run a Navy um, like little kids play soccer, where the ball rolls into the corner and 20 kids go after it. Um, the Navy has to, has to put a good team on the field for the current, uh, for the current fights. It needs to, um, modernize, uh, and lay in stores for the future fight. And it needs to do research and development for the long-term fight. Um, and my fear was that I saw a lot of talk that led me to believe that, uh, not only was the Navy not getting enough money, which it's not, um, but that there might be money taken from the midterm and long-term pots in order to shore up uh, the, 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 uh, the, the near-term pots. And I thought to myself, it, could we do something different? And to be 
utterly honest, I read something that Re Representative Luria said somewhere in the press where she pointed back at the CSBA study from 2017 uh, as a potential for, uh, or as an idea for what might, uh, might be something that we could do. And I went back and read it and I thought deeply about it because as Brian will talk about that, that architecture came with a force structure that animated it. And so right. what Luria is, uh, had suggested and what Brian and I then went and looked at uh, in detail is, well, could we use the force structure we have and implement some of the big muscle movements? Uh, and the more I read, the more I thought, well, yeah, I think we can. I think we can. And I, and I certainly don't think that um, uh, within my power to assess these things, I, look, I didn't, certainly didn't look at it and say, we can't do this. And so uh, we wrote this, hopefully in order to get the Navy to say, to give it a look and see what they might do. Um, uh, Brian Clark, uh, give us a little bit of a reprise on your report, Restoring American Sea Power, uh, a new architecture, fleet architecture for the U.S. Navy, uh, and what the trenchant elements of that are that are most relevant today. Uh, sure, Vago. Uh, so the um, the report was uh, directed by Congress back in 2017 as part of an effort by the Congress to get involved in the whole fleet architecture, fleet design debate that had been going on with the Navy and continues to go on today. Uh, so Congress told the Navy, have an independent group go out and research and figure out what the Navy of the future should look like. Um, so Brian and I uh, mounted this project, and the idea was to uh, both figure out what the uh, Navy should look like day to day uh, and then talk about its implications for the future forest design. So what, what's, what number and mix of ships should we have in the Navy? Uh, and we looked at aircraft too as, a, as an implication of whatever the ship fleet looked like. Um, so that it was an entire fleet architecture, meaning it was force structure, it was a readiness model, it was posture, it was a maintenance plan. So it was the whole kit and caboodle for what a future Navy should look like. Um, the one of the key elements of it, though, was this posture idea. It was you know because the Navy, uh, more so than the other services, is driven by presence as uh, you know, which which is the major dictate or major major determinant of the force design. So whatever you have present day to day ends up through the rotational uh, cycle driving how many ships you need. If it takes four ships to make one overseas then that's gonna be what determines um, how big your fleet is and what the fleet looks like in terms of mix. So we focused a lot on posture. Uh, and in, in, the, in the study, we developed this posture idea of the deterrence force and the maneuver force. Um, the idea being that the deterrence force is the element of the Navy that is up forward, uh, constantly engaged with allies and potential adversaries, um, doing security cooperation, doing shows of force, doing freedom of navigation operations, um, all those kinds of steady state activities that you need to do in order to reassure your allies and convince your opponents that you're actually there. Uh, and then also kind of to build new partnerships with countries like Vietnam or Indonesia that, that might be new players uh, on the scene. Um, that deterrent force, though, we said had to be out there. It had to be very familiar with the region. It had to get a, a sense of a proficiency with operating and also a, a familiarity with the locals, uh, if you will. And to do that, we uh, proposed that they adopt an op-tempo model or deployment model like that of our of our four deployed naval forces. So um, our forces in Japan, Spain, Guam, they're all uh, operating essentially on a cycle where they do maintenance for four months out of the year in training. Um, they get certified and then the other eight months out of the year, they're operating. You know, they're, they're doing you know, local operations, they're kind of deploying throughout the region, but for eight months they're, they're operating at sea. 
Um, that model gives you, uh, as you could probably, as you can see, you know, a, an operational availability more like 67% uh, than the normal 20 to 25% that you get out of a ship that's in OFRP. Um, that allows you to keep this presence up, maximize the amount of forces that are engaged and, and available um, to the combatant commanders overseas. Um, and also, you know, does frequent maintenance so that you can keep the, the readiness and material condition of the ships up over this, you know, more, more strenuous off-tempo cycle. But there's a lot of benefits from it. Uh, because you do get this proficiency um, with the local region, you get this ability to remain very competent at your operations. You're not having to basically cycle everybody up, you know, after a three-year break to get ready to deploy. You're really on a kind of constant dr drumbeat of deployments. The, the deterrence forces were then complemented by the, the uh, maneuver force, which is uh, where um, the carrier strike groups would be. So the deterrence force would be composed mostly of surface combatants, um, some submarines, and your amphibious fleet. So your non-carrier strike group forces would be focused on the deterrence forces. Um, your maneuver force would be the carrier strike groups. So the carrier strike groups in particular on the West Coast, uh, along with the one in Japan, would together form up a two carrier maneuver force. That maneuver force would not be involved in day-to-day -day security cooperation and shows of force or, or FON ops uh, overseas. They would instead, uh, the maneuver force would instead focus on training and practicing for high-end warfare. They would do the big exercises with our allies like Malabar or Talisman Saber, where you're trying to mount a multinational effort to do a major operation. The, the maneuver force, by focusing on that, would be, be able to get better and better at the high-end warfare that you would need it to be called in for, uh, instead of getting burned out doing a lot of lower-end missions that we tend to use the force for today. So that by bifurcating the, the deployed Navy into these two forces, you get a more effective uh, force up forward that's better able to deal with day-to-day -day contingencies um, and confrontations even. Um, and then you've got this maneuver force in reserve that's deployed and ready to be called on to go and, and intervene if something turns into a, a more uh, intense confrontation. Um, that model was adopted in large part by the National Defense Strategy of the Trump administration in the, in the form of the contact force and the blunt force. So that model was carried forth and, and we you know, to, some, to varying degrees of success, tried to implement it um, through the entire joint force. Uh, but that was the idea. And that's what we're talking about today is can we take today's Navy and put it into this operational model to yield greater um, operational availability out of it uh, and better employ the different parts of it for the purposes that it, that it might need to do uh, in, a, in some kind of uh, future contingency? Um, as, okay. as you uh, guys noted, uh, right, I mean, we're on three-year centers, assuming everything goes right, uh, all driven by the carrier. Uh, and then ultimately, the faster you use up the carriers, then you put them in maintenance availabilities faster, and then the whole thing sort of unravels, which is sort of where we've been for a couple of years, although uh, the Navy deserves credit for doing some very big lifts to try to get those carriers uh, out uh, of, of um, um, their maintenance cycles, although, you know, it, it is what it is, and more ships are ready to go into that uh, at the at the end of the day, and 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 certainly some creativity required to uh, get the submarine capacity up as well because of a backlog of uh, at the nuclear yards. Um, Brian, would um, do you have any addenda to this? Uh, right? Yeah, in, yeah, in I terms do. Of, because there's a vast surface force, right? I mean, 85% of the budget, I'm, I'm not uh, trying to slam, because uh, I know we got an 1110 on this, uh, we have a surface warrior as well as a submariner, um, right? I mean, 85% of the maintenance, Navy's maintenance budget goes to the nuclear uh, Navy, uh, submarines and carriers with only 15% that goes to the surface force, you know, sort of give us your thoughts sort of more broadly than that about, you know, how do you get that availability up? Because availability is low, you know, across the Navy, whether you're in a, in a nuclear ship or, or a conventional one. 
Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I'd like to stress that is a testable uh, theory is that were we to take the assets currently in the Pacific Fleet or um, perhaps to even supplement them with a limited number of transferred assets from the Atlantic Fleet, and were we to take the carrier strike, carry, the aircraft carriers and air wings and a uh, limited number of VLS um, uh, configured escorts and create the maneuver force. That maneuver force would pretty much stay on an OFRP readiness cycle or some variant thereof. Um, what happens then is you, the rest of the, uh, of the forces, the surface combatants, the small combatants, the amphibious ships go into the, the, the deterrence force. My thought is, and this is what's testable and, and smart folks at N81 and elsewhere could probably look at this, is that from that pool of ships, you could get on a day-to-day -day basis more and more powerful forward forces arrayed day-to-day. -day. Um, as Brian said, the whole, the whole point of the, of the architecture, I mean, was you know, unlike the other two architectures that, that I didn't don't think hanged hung themselves around a strategic concept, ours did, and that was this this concept of deterrence by denial, uh, making the other guy think that his uh, uh, his aggression might not work, uh, rather than punishment, which is it's going to work, but then we're going to come maybe you know a week or a month later and dislodge you at great cost. Um, this shift, uh, as Brian said, was picked up, but in order to deter by denial, you have to have uh, strength on the field. You have to have a very strong team on the field. And I think what, what is testable in our proposition is that if you created this bifurcated force, that you could probably get more VLS cells, more ships, more combat power forward on a day-to-day -day basis out of the same ships that we have now or a, a small uh, supplement from the Atlantic fleet. I think that's powerful. And I think that that needs, we need to get the math guys on that. Um, let me, uh, Brian uh, uh, McGrath uh, just mentioned, uh, right? I mean, what is it uh, we, we need to do? Do we know what actually moves the Chinese, right? I mean, ultimately for us to be as effective as possible, we have to know what it is that pushes their buttons and they don't like, right? And then keep pushing those buttons, uh, not, not, not to be unpleasant about this, right? But, but know what it is uh, that motivates them, worries them, scares them, uh, deters them for us to be as effective as possible. Do we have the clarity about what it is that the Chinese respond to? Um, yeah, obviously, um, you never know totally for sure. Uh, this is actually a study we are doing right now for the government on you know what deters or dissuades China. Uh, there's a lot of interest in dissuasion right now. Um, but you know, I, to a couple of things. Uh, so one is uh, this week there's been news about um, how the littoral combat ship is perceived over in China, um, and the the introduction of the naval strike missile evidently, and then the deployment of more L LCSs has caused them to perk up their ears and notice the naval force in the region a lot more than they previously had, uh, because it does give you this more distributed force that's got greater numbers and and maybe is difficult, more difficult to defeat in detail. Um, the um, the Chinese idea of system destruction warfare that I think we've discussed, not we, we, but you have discussed on the program before, um, is focused on the Chinese building a system of systems that's designed to defeat 
a predicted way that U.S. forces will operate. And so anything you do that introduces more unpredictability, more complexity into your operations is likely to undermine the confidence that the Chinese have with regard to how quickly and how easily they can go mount an active aggression like an invasion of Taiwan. So having greater presence out in the, in the region, and in particular, a greater presence of like non-carrier forces that could be distributed and organized in a lot of different ways, uh, could introduce this complexity that might uh, impact Chinese decision-making. Um, and when we talk about deterrence by denial, in a lot of cases, what we're talking about is essentially denying them um, success on the terms they would like to have, right? Because if China wants to get Taiwan, obviously they could mount, you know, they'll, they'll move heaven and earth in order to make it happen because they're a big country. Um, but we can make it so that perhaps they can't get it on terms that they would find acceptable at that time. And that's what the naval force is really there to do. Um, and as Brian said, I, you know, it's clearly, you know, increasing the operational availability of the fleet, you know, doubling or even tripling the, the presence out there, which is what this might do, um, would give you a lot more options, create a lot more complexity for the Chinese, and, and in addition, just to provide a lot more fires out there that might be able to interfere with Chinese aggression. So it's it gives you a, a lot more tools in the toolkit if you're in Dopecom. Um, and uh, going back to OFRP, you know, one of the reasons OFRP isn't working is because the original design was intended to give you this kind of flexibility. There was this built-in ability to deploy ships and, and, and carriers uh, multiple times during a cycle. It's just the Navy never really funded that. Uh, and therefore we've got the problems that we have today where by deploying ships multiple times during the cycle, their material condition is terrible and they're having to go back in and get you know repaired or our people are burned out. Um, so this model would actually make it a deliberate you know, design you know, feature that we're gonna have this level of operational availability and we would build our, our training and maintenance schedules and cycles around it, um, which will cost a little bit more money, which we did do some estimating on in the study, um, but obviously it's some pencils will have to be sharpened in order to examine that in today's terms. Um, uh, Brian uh, McGrath, um, let me ask you, and, and this uh, question I'm going to be in, in candor uh, is coming from our producer, uh, Chris Cervello, who's uh, obviously on this call as he always is. Each service is in their mind, the center of the universe, right? And everybody's got to be their own self-contained version of everybody else without really considering what the joint force needs to do. I'm, I am not, uh, and I commend our audience to check out uh, the great conversation you, Brian, had with Elaine Luria uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago now. It was a terrific discussion. And, you know, so there is a reason why we do some of this board planning in a, in, a, in a joint sense. But why not make the majority of the Navy the deterrent force and then rely on the Air Force, the Army, and the Marines as the maneuver force? I mean, what's, what's wrong? Like, you know, like, what are... As we're planning what we want the Navy to look like, we have a tendency of looking at that in complete isolation as if nobody else exists to help, you know, like the Navy is sailing Hayes Gray in harm's way by itself. And that's just not going to be the case. Is the question Cervello's question of why shouldn't the Navy just do deterrence and leave the rest to everybody else? Yes. Okay. But let's then start with that what's the joint, but what's the joint component to right, that we'll to, as, as well? well? We'll get to the second one second. The first one is um, the problem with doing what uh, Chris suggests uh, is that, especially in this theater, which is full of water um, and, and is less of a military environment, um, I don't know necessarily that uh, there is as much for land forces to do as some of them would like us to think there is to do, number one. Number two, um, were, were there to, to be um, a good deal for them to do, they would need to be 
supported from the air. Um, but but in, in fairness, I mean, just to, to interject, right? I mean, the army is working toward long range fires that could be remarkably significant, right? I mean, the effect of modern, I mean, Ray Odierno used to talk about the efficacy of long range coastal battery. I mean, we're, we're getting to a point where there could be, if we can get an agile model, it, there, you would need a lot of sea lift for it. So that, you know, and, and some of these installations would be fixed and not exactly gazelle-like, but part of the army vision is that we would provide some of these uh, long-range uh, fires from ashore for, for is what your, it's worth. Is your description designed to be a positive uh, huh? rendering of that? Uh, let's face it. Uh, the Army doesn't go anywhere lightly. Uh, and unless you want to invade somebody, they don't go anywhere without someone else's permission. Um, and it it is uh, it is problematic to me that a considerable amount of money is being considered to be spent on uh, weapons that may very well be very, very useful after the shooting starts. But because we can't cite them on a day-to-day -day basis because it would be seen as a provocative act or whatever the diplomatic milieu would suggest, um, we're not getting the bang out of them in, in the competition phase. Um, so ultimately, uh, even if, even if, the army had a big role in this fight. Um, they, there needs to be a way to support them from above and supporting the army from above is a very much an air force mission. Um, it's hard to do that when uh, tactically from uh, second island chain and further away. Um, and so ultimately the Navy has to still be involved in uh, not only deterrence, but in the actual war fight. Uh, I think aircraft carriers are uniquely um, equipped and planned for that fight. They are, uh, to some extent, th their goodness and their majesty is is dissipated through all of the day-to-day -day stuff that uh, that we we uh, ask them to do. Um, uh, I, I think ultimately, though, uh, the the second question, the joint part of this thing, is that's sort of like. And I'm not saying you're knee-jerk, Bago, because you're a very intelligent man, in, in, in addition to being a very handsome man. Uh, but you're, the, you're most kind, McGrath. The, thank you. And the feeling line, is quite mutual. You're very right, easy right, on right. the eye. Of course. So uh, are you, bottom, Clark. So there you go. The bottom line is that um, I don't really care about the joint force just yet. I wish to help the Navy with its knitting. And its knitting is... It has a job to do in the Western Pacific. That job is within a joint context. I salute the flag on that. But it is not, in my view, doing that job as effectively and efficiently as it might. And that's what I would like to be a part of trying to help. Um, I, I, I believe that the whole focus of this has got to be to make sure the shooting doesn't start because once it does, we're, we're sort of fundamentally screwed. Clark, let me uh, get your take on this and very quickly uh, get an answer to sort of a broader strategic, uh, briefly broader strategic think question uh, about, about leadership. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, um, uh, which I agree with Brian uh, on his points. Uh, I am uh, more of a joint, you know, I'm more interested in the joint force trying to work together. You know, it's all about singing kumbaya and holding hands. But um, I think in terms of the maneuver versus deterrent force, uh, we had looked at this um, in the study and in some previous work we had done as part of air sea battle. And actually we saw the air forces as being the maneuver force. And so the carriers as part of that uh, air force com air component, you know, which is the naval part of the air component um, has is more 
useful in the maneuver force than it is in the, in the deterrent force because those carriers, as Brian was saying, um, you know, they need to focus on the high end of conflict. They can't get bogged down into day to day engagements that might detract from the time they have to train and prepare. Um, you know, also. Um, at the range they're going to have to operate, at least initially in a confrontation with China, their flights are going to be more like those of bombers. You know, it's going to be a flight and then, you know, two, three cycles later, they come back. You know, so it's not going to be cyclic ops like we've seen in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so the way that the carrier is being used is much more like a mobile air base rather than as a near, nearby uh, airfield. But, um, with what, so it, but, with what, but with what aircraft? It, it, the carrier well, deck I, is populated with very short-ranged airplanes that are not right, stealthy so, largely. Yeah. So so two things there. So one in the study, obviously, we proposed that the Navy invest in the UCAV or a long range unmanned combat air vehicle that would be able to get that kind of range. Um, with the current fleet, uh, the Navy's argument would be, well, we can, with the MQ-25, we can get like half the air wing out to you know, 1500 miles, and then we've got long range weapons, and that might get you the rest of the way. So they they basically send, you know, as many aircraft as they can downrange with the longest range weapons they have, they launch those weapons, they come back, the whole thing takes eight hours or something, um, or more. Um, and uh, so they're not doing very many cycles, but that's their contribution from the air uh, for the fight, um, which makes them more part of this maneuver force alongside the bombers than it does alongside the surface combatants that are firing missiles. Um, so that ended up being their, the employment model ends up being much more like a, like a air base rather than as a, as a, uh, you know, close in knife fighter, um, like your missile carrying littoral combat ships and destroyers might be. Um, and then the ground forces end up being much more like the contact force. And so when, when this idea was ported into the NDS, this was the idea that they had was that, ground-based fires, the degree that they're even possible in the first island chain, because as Brian noted, countries are going to be reticent to host them. Um, but to the degree they are there, they're going to be employed much more as part of the contact force, you know, so they're going to be, or, or the deterrent force. Um, so they'll be part of that day-to-day -day engagement. Um, uh, so, so yeah, you could see the joint contribution coming in, but coming in in either, the, either of these buckets. Um, one last thing on the Air Force, though, is it when we did the study, the Air Force was looking pretty aggressively at doing some counter maritime operations. In the subsequent years, they've walked away from that. They're not investing in the weapons or the sensors or the capabilities they would really need to be able to contribute to maritime fires. So they're going to be focused on other targets than what the Navy is going to be having to address. So it's hard to think of them getting too involved in the maneuver force, but I think that is the part of the force that they would contribute to if they were to contribute. Um, an unmanned refueling aircraft is important, but that was jammed down the Navy's throat and is not something that the Navy organically wanted to do. Right. The last four CNOs or more that I've talked to about this on, off, background while it was happening was they simply could not get Naval Air Forces to embrace the kind of long-range air power the carrier needed. So, okay, it's great. It's, it's refueling jets, most of which will not be stealthy and won't really be able to operate and get that close. So I, I, I got it. It's just by the time we have enough of those airplanes to be able to move a needle, that window will have been closed. I've been asking leaders for the last, as both of you know, for like 15 years, what we think that window is going to be. You know, some think it's a two-year window and Davidson, uh, you know, has, has said it's a six-year window and you guys note that. The, the question I've got to ask as somebody who's been following this uh, and talking to you guys about this forever, as far as I can tell, or at least, it, you know, for the overwhelming bulk of my career at this point is, is anybody listening? I mean, we're having these conversations 
on a regular basis. And I have a feeling we are saying and trying to find ways of saying the same thing over and over again. In 2021, referring to a 2017 study, elements of which, Brian, you were thinking about when you were working for Greener, to be frank, and that navalists and strategists in, in the uh, uh, Department of the Navy or in OPNAV were, were thinking about. And, and ultimately, I mean, is it a lack of imagination? Is it disagreement? Is it ineptitude? Right. I mean, what's what's keeping us from embracing that which we know we must do because we're sort of we're running out of time. Right. Which was the problem. Time is a commodity. It is the most precious commodity. Squander it. You know, there's no time machine any more than, you know, screwing up the earth and figuring, you know, we're going to just repopulate Mars starting next year. OK, theoretically, uh, I got brilliant, a, practically useless. Go ahead, McGrath. I got a couple of thoughts on this. Um, as to is anyone listening? Um, I, I realize that's a general question. I'm going to take it and specify it to this piece that Brian and I just put out. This idea, um, one of the things we we uh, spoke to at the end of it, if it were if the Navy said this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, let's go do this, it would be incredibly disruptive. It would not be easy to bring about. It would put a great deal of strain on repair organizations that would be required to change the way they do business, more frequent, shorter uh, maintenance periods. If, if you're involved in organizing, training, and equipping surface forces, when you read this thing, you're going to have a heart attack. It just so happens that the three-star who does that is a client of mine, and he, when he reads this, is likely to have a heart attack and, and uh, reach out and touch me. Um, one of the things that I do when I write these things is I never, I never show them to the people that I, that I consult for. Um, and I, I just take the chance that, hey, if they don't like it, they'll fire me and that's okay. Um, this would be very difficult and it would cause a great deal of disruption. I think you'll see it. I think what, what will happen is that the operating forces will look at this and say, hey, that sounds cool. Let's look into this. Um, the organized, trained, and equipped forces would look and go, wow, that looks really, really hard and expensive. Um, uh, I don't know exactly how expensive or more expensive it would be, but uh, in terms of the Navy you're buying per dollar, I think you'd find that it's, a, it's an increase over what we're doing today. Clark? Yeah, so um, to the cost issue, when we uh, did the study, we found that um, our FDNF forces, our forward deployed naval forces that have this higher operational tempo model, they cost about 30% more in terms of operations and maintenance than their counterparts back here in the continental United States. Um, it, part of that is just because they're overseas, there's inflation involved in that, but about 20% of that 30% is probably due to the fact that they're a higher operational tempo model. It's less efficient to do maintenance annually than it is to kind of group it together into convenient chunks um, that you do every three or four, eight years. Um, so there's, there's a higher cost there. There's a change in the model for the way that the ship repair yards work because you're going to have more frequent but shorter availabilities than we do today. Um, it's a transition that could happen, um, and there would be some money involved, clearly. Um, the point we were trying to make was, well, if the Congress is willing to give $25 billion extra to the Department of Defense, $8 billion of it to the Navy, um, maybe steer some of that money into this new operational model rather than steering it all into procurement and not really addressing the near-term challenge that the Navy's facing. And this is a way to try to address the near-term challenge without having to, uh, for, uh, to um, for, uh, uh, mortgage the future in order to do it. Um, in terms of how do you implement it, um, clearly there's leadership involved. 
Um, you can see with what's going on in the Marine Corps, General Berger has made a very good uh, effort to redesign the force, change the way they operate, change the way they think. Obviously, it's the Marine Corps. It's a different way of uh, viewing the leadership you know, uh, hierarchy. Uh, and also, they're smaller. Um, the Navy would have a harder time doing that. Um, but uh, back when um, Admiral Greenert was CNO, um, Ash Carter initiated a similar effort looking at the carrier force to try to get more operational availability out of that. And we did a lot of studies and figured out some options. Um, and some of those things got you know, worked into the way that we operate carriers today. Um, but a similar level of leadership attention could actually make this at least the transition be initiated or at least parts of it be initiated. Um, and I think what we're lacking today is the, is a, is a set of leaders that are willing to make those um, take those take the initiative, make those disruptive changes, or at least to uh, begin implementing them on a small scale to see how they uh, play out um, and see if they might be scaled up to the entire Pacific fleet. Um, so there's a leadership vacuum or, you know, we need to get some leaders involved here to, to initiate this change or else uh, it'll never happen. I'm not sure that um, interest on the grassroots is really going to be sufficient to make, make it uh, occur. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more on that on that last point. I mean, this is something for um, a, a CNO to be willing to break China and not sort of go along to sort of be the CNO, if 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 you know what I mean. Uh, and then yeah. the flag wardroom to step up because part of the impediment here at the end of the day is not a deck plate thing. It starts from up there, and ultimately everybody's got to recognize they can drive forward anything they want to drive forward. The question is at what price. And and uh, McGrath, the only point I would say, and I I, I like your uh, answer. Uh, but the fundamental reality is what it is we're doing now is very expensive and not getting us there, right? So you got to pay now or you're going to pay even more later. And the sooner we get this done, the better it's going to be, as opposed to saying, well, change itself is really hard and it's really expensive. We know that it's, you know, welcome to the NFL, right? This is the big leagues, you, you know, well, well, man up know, that's, for God's sake. That's sakes. why we wrote the article. <laughs> yes, well, I know, but I mean, my frustration is, you know, and, and you guys have talked, we've all talked about this is, you know, I mean, it, you know, repetition, repetition, repetition helps, but at some point it's a little bit frustrating because the, the movement is not happening with the alacrity with which it needs to happen, nor does it seem like anybody is sort of publicly hitting the reset button and saying, you know, increasingly, um, I, I had the pleasure of being on uh, Cavus and Cervello's uh, show on Cavus Ships last Friday. Uh, one of the things I neglected to say is that the United States Navy and I dare say the United States Army are seen as the two services who do not get it, whereas increasingly the Air Force and the Marine Corps, uh, even as they struggle to work through these, are seen as two services who appreciate the magnitude of the change and are actually beginning to take those risks to de-risk their futures, whereas the the view of 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 the of of the two big services uh, is, is very plodding and very resistant to try to make some of those changes. And I see this from an army standpoint. At some point, the army will need all of these things. Whereas in the Navy's case, the frustration is there are things that we know the Navy needs to do and it is not doing them. So that's, I think, a little bit of the challenge and the, and the frustration. Gentlemen, thank you very, very much. Really appreciate it. It's always an honor and pleasure having you guys on the program. What a treat. A couple of times in one week, we got to keep this up. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Aga. Absolutely.
And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.